Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on August 9, 2018, discussing the new proposed toll charge repatriation regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PwC tax partner and our tax services leader, Doug McConey, a PwC tax principal and our international tax services leader, and Elizabeth Nelson, Mike Erse, and Mike DeFranzo, all PwC tax partners focusing on international tax issues. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a quick overview of the proposed 965 regulations, followed by a discussion of the first four of the panel's top 10 issues from the regulations, all dealing with calculation issues, including ENP, cash position and foreign tax computation, allocation of deficits to consolidated groups, disregarded transactions between measurement dates, and cash position. Have a listen. Just uh, background, again, I want to set level set very quickly. Obviously, on August 1st, we got this gift. It's a 249-page reg package. It's pretty heavy. Um, interestingly, for as heavy as it is, there is not a lot of change that came from the submitted comments thus far. So. Um, certainly uh, Treasury stayed down the path of some of the stuff we had seen before. Um, the regs largely reflect what we've already seen come out in the various notices that have come along, and really they're providing guidance across the area we'd expect to see ENP calculations, the allowable deduction, foreign tax uh, positions, or foreign cash positions, I'm sorry, the FTC issues and other sort of affiliation consolidation issues. There's also some procedural guidance in there that we'll, we'll dig a little bit into and help people understand what's in there. So um, that's an overview. Um, it is broken up into nine sections. We have the nine sections listed on the screen. Again, going through that general pattern of what I talked about, including ENP basis adjustments, um, the deduction to get down to the appropriate taxable amount, disregarded transactions, which we'll dig into that a little bit, some interesting stuff in there. So um, that's that's what we intend to go through. But again, we're not going to go section by section through here for everybody. Our goal is really to highlight top 10 areas that we really think you all should be focused on as you're trying to figure out how to how to address the regulations. With that, why don't we jump into the calculation issue side? And Mike, I'm going to come to you. Mike Erse, I should say. I'm going to come to you first, okay? Sounds good. So um, the thing that's most interesting to me uh, about these proposed regulations is what's not in them. Um, there are simply no shortcuts that were uh, contained in these regs. Basically, you need to calculate your earnings and profits and your foreign tax pools for the past 31 years. And there is simply no um, easier method that's suggested. Um, and in fact, even if you have uh, uncontrolled parties, you still have to go get the data from those uncontrolled parties as best you can. Uh, so the takeaway on this point is simply that um, for most companies, this is going to be the largest subpart F inclusion in your corporate history and probably the largest foreign tax credit you'll ever claim. And it's going to be important to get the relevant information that you need since post-86 post to support your EMP calc, to support your foreign tax credit that you claim. And that includes getting foreign tax returns and foreign tax receipts. So really, um, a bit of work ahead for people. Yeah, and I think one of the big challenges, too, is going to be with the 1050 companies, as you mentioned, the non-controlled. And it's always been a struggle for clients. 
clients and taxpayers to be able to get access to that information. So trying to understand your point as far as what the E&P and tax pools for these companies that you don't control is, is certainly challenging. And I would just say this isn't just a difficult calculation that goes into what we're doing from a standpoint of tax compliance, trying to work through that. People are also going to have to think through the tax accounting side of this and the provision side. A lot of provisional amounts already booked, but then taking into account all this stuff and, and making sure they substantiate all that's going to be a really interesting exercise. Not to load too much on a single point, but I've got to say something here too. I mean, we end this, this slide with no shortcuts. And that is true when you read the regulations. Um, the one thing I would note is there's a, an old RevProc out there, 2011-42, which deals with statistical sampling. There's no reference to t statistical sampling, but it's been adopted in a lot of other cases. And I guess the question is, will Treasury accept something like that? I would expect there'll be a push that you'll be able to get maybe statistical sampling for maybe just the foreign tax credits or get it for some other things. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll get some softening. Have to see. And I'd say one provision maybe to call attention to um, that was a clarification for purposes of computing your deferred foreign income is that if you have subpart F PTI amounts, that they would only reduce your post-86 E&P if that subpart F PTI was included in the post-86 E&P at the measurement date. So at 11.2 or 12.31, so you're really going to have to look at when the subpart F was incurred in order to calculate your deferred foreign income. Yeah. And Mike, on the statistical sampling point, your point is more about people potentially leveraging that to support their tax return and potentially right. what the service does from a standpoint of trying to audit this, because that's right. a big question as to what, what they do from exactly. a standpoint of auditing this. Right? Yeah. And you look at the window. I mean, filing's around the corner. Yeah. And even people just, just trying to figure out how to get handle on stuff, the right answer is you've got to get those numbers all the way back, you know, 31 years. Yep. That's the right answer. That's the only safe answer. Yeah. Um, but... Um, looking ahead, or maybe if you can't get there, is it an option? Not expressly, no, but it's something that uh, you could explore. Okay. Moving to our second item that we want to note here. Doug, I'm going to come to you. Um, this one was a little bit interesting from a mm -hmm. standpoint of they, they really tried to do some things here to even out transactions that were taking part or taking place between the periods, right, and, and trying to disregard them. You want to maybe walk through that? Yeah, I think this took some of us by surprise, <laughs> too, and we're still trying to get our arms around the, all of the consequences of various types of payments. But effectively, what, what we were told, and we actually include a citation in the upper right-hand corner to the reg sites as we go through each of these respective concepts, but payments between the measurement dates um, effectively are disregarded for purposes of computing our 965 amount between SFCs. And the, the issue that I think many of us are facing is how does that impact the foreign tax credit, um, the, the 960 credit, as a result of, of the inclusion and a result of disregarding this payment. So we've shown an example. I think this is best illustrated actually walking through a, a numerical example. So you'll see we have a payment from CFC2 to CFC1, and we've chosen a, a royalty um, because we'll get into some of the other complexities, but we'll, we showed it as a royalty payment between CFC2 to CFC1 for 300. And if we look to the right, where we do not disregard the payment, so kind of I think the way many of us computed this or thought that the way this was going to work, that effectively when we have our 965 inclusion at CFC1, we were able to get all of our foreign tax credit. So our 902 fraction was 100%. But as a consequence of disregarding the payment for purposes of, of determining our foreign tax credit, you'll see on the right-hand side, CFC1, so the payee, the person that actually receives the payment, they only receive 77% of that foreign tax credit. And so in this particular example, 
the amount of foreign tax credits that CFC1 can use as part of their 965 inclusion go down. And I think it's really going to depend on a, on a CFC by CFC, or I should say SFC by SFC perspective to really understand what the downstream consequences of this were, what that, what, and ultimately the amount of foreign tax credit that is available. And Doug, we think this is sort of the opposite of what most people did. Most people would have recorded their measurement amount where the money landed as opposed to reversing it out completely. This was a surprise. Yes, yeah, so we think this is an area where people are going to have to go back and relook at what they did because the, probably the more logical consequence was that they were, to your point, looking at where it landed, not necessarily trying to go back and disregard these items, right? Right. When you're talking about disregarded transactions, too, there's a lot more to it. I mean, we've got an example here, but there's all kinds of transactions where there's implications under the regs. And it was really notice three um, throughout this sort of anti-abuse approach to things, and it was the proverbial hammer to kill the fly. Um, it could be a domestic incorporation, you know, taking the financial services space in, in funds, incorporating an entity for administrability, just so that all the, you know, thousands of, of holders in the fund aren't picking up 965. They had a single pair doing it, and they were doing it for guilty or other reasons, too. But it gets caught, and you get back to you disregard those transactions. Um, there are others, too, that, that are lingering out there. So, unfortunately, no softening. So big solution for what might have been a small problem, huh? Probably, yeah. yeah and, I, and I do think this is going to impact many, if not most, of the computations that people did because obviously not uncommon to have payments between SFCs between November 2nd and December 31st. And so anybody who had those payments needs to go back and, and relook at their, their foreign tax credit and the 965 consequences. Elizabeth, I'm, I'm going to come to you, but it's a pivot off of something Doug was just going through. So. Um, with the disregarded transaction guidance that's out there, there's going to be a ton of focus on the last eight weeks of the year and sort of what happened in that period of time. N not everything happens ratably during the course of the year, and particularly right. during that eight-week that eight period of time. There are things that happen at point in time, things that happen ratably. Sort of what sort of issues do you see popping up as it relates to trying to apply that guidance and figure out what's going on given the way things are accrued? So we're, we're seeing this particularly with interest expense, where you might have an interest expense that accrued between the measurement dates, and so it might be a specified payment that would fall into the double counting provision, but that interest income would have likely have accrued ratably throughout the year. And the way that the double counting provision is worded, it doesn't necessarily take into account the fact that you may have that income in your 11-2 EMP. E&P, and therefore the adjustment might need to be made to that E&P as opposed to the 1231 E&P. So it's something that we're kind of thinking through and seeing whether or not the provision really covers that fact pattern. Okay. All right. Number three in the top ten. And again, a lot of guidance out there around how to deal with deficits. So Elizabeth, you want to start to take us through that? Sure. So the proration of deficits in the statute is a two-step process. It was um, contemplated for, you know, all taxpayers, and in the notice that came out, uh, the first notice that came out, service adopted one U.S. shareholder approach for consolidated groups, and so hinted at the fact that we may have a one-step uh, approach for proration of deficits, and the proposed regs bear this out. They have a provision that for consolidated groups allows for a proration, a one-step uh, proration of deficits, and so to the extent taxpayers have done the two-step approach that was in the statute, this will be a change, and it will likely change the foreign tax credit results for the deemed paid credits. And it could be 
it could be favorable, it could be unfavorable. You just have to work through the numbers um, to figure out whether what the result is and what the change to the deemed paid credits are. Was this one expected, unexpected? I think this, this one was, was in expected. The notice. Yeah. It, it was hinted at in the notice, and I think we thought that it would be in a, a proration of an aggregate deficit pool for consolidated groups. They just hadn't come out with a, a rule. Yeah, I, I actually think this rule is the single largest thing in all in the regs that affects computations. And the reason is um, the notice did say we were going to go from a two-step to a one-step, but a lot of people did their toll charge calculation in early January and did it in a two-step fashion. They may or may not have done a one-step alternative. Um, and if they didn't, this could materially change their 960 credit. So um, almost every client has deficits somewhere. And so if you did a two-step calculation, you have definitely got different earnings and profits on the measurement dates um, than what you previously calculated. So I, I think this one alone calls for a recalc. Yeah, and this, this particular example that we show here where we have a deficit that's under the same U.S. shareholder as a lower tax pool um, and where we have the high tax pool over in the other U.S. shareholder. So if you do the two-step where you've done the separate computations, which we show up here in the, the we call it the 965B5 approach, there we end up with actually more foreign tax credits because, you know, there's less dilution of the high tax pool using the, the two-step approach. And then with this one-step approach, we effectively end up diluting the, the, the pools. And so this, in this particular example, it, it, it could have a significant swing, particularly on your 960 deemed paid credits. The only time it, it wouldn't is if you're in a single chain. Right. Then the one-step and the two-step should give you the same answer. Correct. Because you would have prorated your deficit under the same chain. And it could be that the two-step, the one-step approach gives you a favorable answer. It really just, just depends on your yeah, tax pools in the deferred foreign income corporation. Right. I think if the high and the low were switched, then we would end up with a different result exactly. if they were in different chains. Exactly. Okay. Continuing on our top 10 journey, um, talking about cash positions. This is an area where there's probably not a lot of change, although there are a lot of hopes and expectations that maybe there might be comments. some changes, right? <laughs> a lot of comments. A lot of comments. Yeah, a lot of comments. <laughs> but, but not a lot of change. No. Right. Okay. Mike, you want to? Well, cash, cash is king. Cash is important. Why is it important here? It's because it had a higher rate. <laughs> um, and so when you're looking at your 965 hit, um, to the extent you had cash, you had more tax. And I, I think there were a lot of good um, points that were made by taxpayers saying it's, it's really unfair to get at a number of things, and can you give us some relief? Um, and the government thought about it. I know they thought about it, and, but the answer was no, no relief. So what you got uh, is pretty much uh, a set of rules without any exceptions on the cash positions. So if you have cash, it's going to be taxed at the cash rate. Um, and that includes things like holding a greater than 10% interest in a publicly traded company that you probably can't get rid of. Um, having regulatory capital, if you're an insurance company or a bank, having uh, in the business of having something that's traded on exchange like pork bellies, um, you've got cash. So those things, really no relief. And then the other one that there was a really big push on, a lot of people were hoping for, was some relief with notional pooling. And the answer is no. Um, and that was explicitly dealt with in the reg, no. So um, no good news on the cash side. 
So I know we're going to talk about this later, but th is this an area where you think people should continue to comment? And I, I'm just I'm, I'm Hope working through the eternal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, personally, yeah, we, we dialogued with a lot of clients yeah. that had some issues in this space. I mean, acquisition capital, things yes. like that that were out there. Absolutely. There was a lot of issues that caused, and we're talking about a big rate swing between oh, yeah. cash versus non-cash in here, so mm -hmm. on, on a big number. Yeah. So it just, it feels like, I, I get the point, it's, it's hard to administer, but it is an answer that might not make the most sense from a policy standpoint for our clients. So do, do we expect? I, I mean, it really makes for winners and losers. Um, certain industries really get slammed by the rule. Um, certain taxpayers who are doing an acquisition and happen to have just put the capital in uh, to do that acquisition. I mean, it's really, really unfortunate. And I, I would say equity would say that's not the right answer. Um, and of course, I think we can continue. Um, we'll get to the end a little bit about the common period and what it means and where we are a little bit procedurally with the reg. Yes, there's still hope. Yeah. And yes, we can push for change. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.